Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN, and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And I want to cover just a couple things uh, before we get into the episode today. So you may be asking, uh, Nick, where's the pod been? Right. So a very close family member has been in the hospital for almost two weeks. So obviously helping out with that. And then, you know, I got acutely ill on top of that this week. So I say that not for sympathy, anything like that. I normally don't like to share what's going on with me on this end, but just explaining the delay, what's going on. So uh, we're going to have, this is Friday the 20th, October 20th. So we're going to have two trials of the week releasing today with uh, lots of great stuff uh, coming next week. The delays were mainly my fault. So apologies on that end. Hopefully you've been able to catch up on some of these awesome episodes um, in the meantime that we've been putting out. But other big thing, We are on the precipice of a huge, huge partnership announcement. So, so excited. Um, Won't hear anything on these two trials of the week. Probably will have something to update firmly next week, but very, very excited to update the friends. All the hard work, all of you all sharing and things has, uh, has brought some sponsors to the forefront. So appreciate everybody. Um, More to possibly come there very, very shortly. We are back for October Trials of the Week, and we are reviewing a landmark study researching the most appropriate crystalloid for fluid resuscitation. So Anthony Hawkins, man, the myth, the fluid steward, returns to discuss the 2015 JAMA article, The Split Trial. So we set the scene and compare different crystalloids uh, while reviewing research uh, on fluids that had occurred up to that point. Uh, Then, of course, we go into all things about the trial of the week, the split trial, dive in and dissect this study before uh, discussing where are we now and talking about what is the best primary outcome for these studies? What is research in progress? How do we measure, how do we best measure AKI in research and much, much more? And one last note, happy pharmacy week. Woo! So if you are a social media follower, and if you're not, why the heck are you not at Pharmacy to Dose? Uh, you saw that uh, gave away copies of Andrea Sikora's book, Pay It Forward, all week to celebrate. Whether it was commenting on your mentor, telling a favorite mentorship story, literally just retweeting, uh, we got to give away all week. So uh, shout out to all of the friends of the pod who took part in that. I hope everybody had a great time celebrating all you do on a daily basis for Pharmacy Week. Anthony Hawkins returns. It's a trial of the week. Uh, It's a great episode. So sit back, relax, because it starts right now. With us now, very special guest, one of the OG friends of the pod, fluid steward, conference correspondent, Faculty liaison, that's correct. Anthony Hawkins has returned to the pod. So uh, for those unfamiliar, MICU pharmacist and clinical faculty at the UGA College of Pharmacy and the Medical College of Georgia, uh, UGA C3 member, uh, avid hunter, husband. Anthony, what did I miss, man? How are you? Man, that's pretty good. I I love a good brewery and a good uh, game of disc golf, and I'm a big fan of dogs. Um, But otherwise, man, that's that's good. (laughs) 
And, you know, of course, fluid stewards. So how could we have our first fluid-themed trial of the week and not bring you on, right, highlighting the split trial? So thanks for joining us, taking time out of your recording this. We're actually recording this on Friday the 13th. So uh, uh, thanks for taking time out of your uh, spooky day uh, for the pod. We appreciate you. Yeah, man, always a good time. Looking forward to this one and then hopefully again recording um, in Dallas here soon. Mm, that's going to be great. Conference corresponding coming back. Always, always fun recapping those. So that'll be an absolute blast. Now, let's set the scene with the split trial here for a second. And let to help show the differences, right, in balanced fluids and our 0.9% sodium chloride, a.k.a. lovingly referred to as abnormal saline coined by you. But describe or compare the fluid composition in what I think of as like our big three crystalloids, like normal saline, LR, and plasmalite, the last two being our, our balanced fluids. Um, yeah, saline, abnormal saline, you could generically say in some studies, um, in some literature, they call it isotonic salt solution, but I think that may be a little bit too vague. Um, but in general, um, salt water, normal saline, um, the only thing really normal about it is its osmolality. It's, you know, 308 milliosmoles, which is close to plasma, you know, roughly 290, 305-ish, something along those lines. Um, but it is fully made up of sodium and chloride. And, you know, comparing 154 milliequivalents of sodium to plasma, it's high, but it's not overly high. Um, the chloride is really where you get into the big issues. You know, normal plasma is around 100, and in sodium chloride, you know, 150. So it's like a weak um, hydrochloric acid is how I like to, you know, kind of let students think about it because it's got a pH of a little over five. So it's pretty acidotic. And that's the manifestations that we are concerned about in patients is it can cause a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. And that's got some implications in um, renal function and that type of thing. Whereas um, our, our big buffered crystalloids, plasmalite, LR, um, they are also relatively... Um, Isoosmolar LR maybe on the slighter lower end of normal, um, around 270. Um, but in general, I mean, you know, they're pretty similar. They just have instead of all of the chloride, they substitute a chunk of their chloride with a different anion. Um, LR uses lactate, and then plasmalite uses acetate and gluconate. Um, and then the two buffered, they have a few different electrolyte um, contributions, um, like potassium, a little bit of potassium and calcium, maybe. I think those are the big overarching differences. So there are, right, minor differences, right, like the presence of calcium or maybe a little potassium and things, right? But the big picture, the big ticket item difference, the things that, that we're concerned about downstream is that high chloride content in our – uh, that was fun. The isotonic uh, salt water solution, is that what, what – uh, that feels too vague. That feels like what you would say if you're trying to – talk about it but not talk about it but um a good a good comparison kind of difference there though kind of breaking it down for us those balanced versus our our sodium chloride crystalloids now the split trial published in 2015 now we've had studies comparing crystalloids since 2015 right we've highlighted some of those but if we're going back in our time machine what evidence did we have comparing crystalloid fluids before or as the split trial was recruiting? Yeah, I think of um, just in general, the progression of studies of IV fluids is kind of similar to that of, 
of blood sugar control. You know, we went from specifically in MI patients to then a very broad scope of ICU patients. And then we started tailoring it down and specifying medical, surgical, that type of thing. Um, very early on, we had a lot of fluid. The big fluid um, controversy before the split trial was crystalloids versus starches and colloids. Um, so we had the 6S, the chest, the bicep trials. All those were starches versus crystalloid and kind of smashed, debunked starches. Um, and then we started getting more into other colloids, specifically albumin. So we had the SAFE trial. Um, and then the, the crystal um, was, a, was a large trial that spanned over a lot of time that was a more general, any colloid versus any saline. Um, and so that was really the big controversy was crystalloid versus non-crystalloid type, type fluids. Um, then there were a couple small studies looking at balanced crystalloids versus um, normal saline, abnormal saline. Um, first looked at um, the comparison of those two in several healthy volunteers and showed that the folks that received saline, it actually um, took them longer to produce urine. You know, a lot of times the number one indication for giving an IV fluid bolus is because they had poor urine output in the ICU or in the hospital in general, I guess. And the folks, the healthy folks that got um, saline, it actually took them longer um, before they had their first episode of, of urination micturition. Um, and they found that it showed decreased renal artery blood flow velocity, renal cortical tissue perfusion, and that type of thing. Um, keep in mind that's study gave patients a 50 ml per kilo bolus over one hour. So it was a lot of fluid. Um, and then after that, there was a, a saline versus balanced salt solutions um, after cardiac surgery. And they showed a little bit of difference in like just acid-based disturbances overall, just pH differences. Um, but then we had our first like really big randomized trial, specifically looking at folks in the ICU. And that was the UNOS, I call it the UNOS trial in 2012. Um, and really just looked at a chloride rich versus a chloride um, or a chloride conser conservative and chloride liberal um, fluid selection. And it showed that patients had a markedly increased or a change from baseline in their serum creatinine and their chloride levels. And they had a much higher incidence of um, injury and failure on the rifle scale for AKI. Um, patients were more likely to need renal replacement therapy. Um, but of note, there was no difference of in-hospital mortality, ICU or hospital length of stay. So that was really the only trial in ICU patients comparing the two types of fluid choices um, in our ICU patients. And so really up until the... Uh, UNO study that you described, we really just had some observational data to suggest this. And then it really wasn't until that 2012 study um, showing, right, they found the decrease in the incidence of AKI and use of renal replacement therapy. So uh, kind of setting the scene, right, for the split trial, right, our trial of the week, what we're going to highlight here. So this is the the effect of a buffered crystalloid solution versus saline on acute kidney injury among patients in the intensive care unit, the split randomized clinical trial. So I'm going to give a brief overview of kind of the methodology, some of the patients that, that they included. Uh, Anthony will fill in any gaps I missed and then talk about the results and go from there. So 
published in JAMA in 2015 uh, by the Australia and New Zealand Intensive Care Society or the ANZICS uh, Clinical Trials Group. So uh, New Zealand prospective multi-center blinded cluster randomized double crossover study. That second piece we'll get to in just a second. Uh, and the patients were randomized to either a 0.9% sodium chloride or plasma light 148. So uh, the study took place in four ICUs, uh, three of which were kind of mixed med surge ICUs. Um, and the units were randomly assigned via computer generation to a study crystalloid. And the ICUs crossed over to receive the other fluid at seven weeks and the study did this twice. So if you think about it, each ICU, they received each study fluid twice. Uh, and they had about as broad of an inclusion criteria as you could have. Patients admitted to a study ICU requiring crystalloid treatment. And the, the two kind of key exclusion criterias uh, were ESRD prior to admission or expected to receive renal replacement therapy within six hours of ICU admission. So uh, the primary outcome was patients with AKI or renal failure. And that was based on their serum creatinine levels according to the rifle criteria, right? Uh, how we kind of uh, classify or stage our acute kidney injury. Some key secondary outcomes they were looking at overall delta in the creatinine, right? The change from baseline to peak value, the requirement of renal replacement therapy and ICU or in-hospital mortality. Now, one quick note. So... In the supplementary appendix, the authors note that there's no established statistical method for calculating a sample size for a trial design like this, a cluster crossover trial with binary outcome variables, i.e., did you, you know, do you have AKI or renal failure or not? Um, and so they didn't have a sample size calculation performed, and that's why they the, the authors described that. So just something to keep in mind. Uh, now, looking at the participants themselves, so patients were enrolled from April 2014 through October 2014, um, and all 2,270 eligible patients were enrolled into the study. Uh, just under 2,100, 2,092 were included in that primary outcome analysis. No difference in baseline characteristics, primarily men uh, in their early 60s, uh, mainly of New Zealand descent. Um, the, now the biggest key here, the source of admission of the ICU, the operating room was the, was the number one, uh, reason followed by after elective or emergency surgery. So, uh, Anthony, come on back, uh, fill in what I miss. And then let's, let's talk about what the split trial ultimately found outcome wise. Yeah, I, I think you did a good job capturing, you know, most of that background methods to the, to the madness, if you will. Yeah. Roughly 2,100 patients included. I think a couple other key things that I would highlight, you did definitely capture that a lot of them came from the OR, specifically after elective cardiac surgery. So at baseline, they just had very few comorbidities. Yep. Um, and I'll kind of tie that back to maybe some of the early delirium trials and kind of how we progress with that similarly. Um, so very notably, most after elective cardiac surgery, few comorbidities. Their baseline creatinine was 1.02-ish. I'm like, I very rarely ever see somebody with a creatinine below one and a half at when they're admitted to the ICU, at least the medical ICU that, that I work in. Um, and kind of to go along with that, their baseline Apache 2 score was roughly 14. Well, that was, that was the median. So for those of you that don't know, an Apache 2 score is a general severity of illness score to help estimate ICU mortality. And an, an Apache 2 score of 14 should give you a rough 
um, ICU mortality rate of somewhere around, I don't know, 15, 20 to 25%, I would say. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that. So um, in general, you know, relatively lower severity of illness on admission. Um, this was a crossover study, very similar to other um, stud fluid studies that have been published since this time. Over 90% of patients got fluids prior to enrollment. So I think that's a big thing to make note of. Um, only 4% of the patients were admitted with sepsis, 6% with respiratory failure. Um, and at least for me in a medical ICU, that's probably, I don't know, 80 plus percent of, you know, our admission um, ICU diagnoses. On average, patients in both groups received around two liters of study fluid. Um, and, it, you know, it's really funny in the study, they said we asked clinicians because it was blinded. So it was just fluid A and fluid B. Um, we just asked clinicians at the end of the study if they could guess which fluid was which one. And two thirds of the, of the clinicians after the study was over knew which fluid um, was, was which just because of, I guess, lab abnormalities that they had seen, you know, whatever it was, something about the patients that isn't captured in the publication um, gave them a little bit of insight, which I think is, is pretty interesting. In terms of the outcomes, um, you know, their primary outcome, like you mentioned, was um, AKI. Roughly 9.5% um, developed an AKI within 90 days in both groups, so it was, it was similar. Um, a little over 3% needed renal replacement therapy in each group. Again, no difference. Um, an important difference, um, you know, again, this is one of those clinical versus statistical differences, in hospital mortality was 7.6% in the plasma-like group and 8.6% in the saline group. So it was an absolute mortality difference of 1% in, in um, hospital mortality. Um, relative risk, you know, 0.88 um, better versus 3.3% worse in the, in the saline group. Um, so could be a relative decrease by 33% essentially in the in the saline or in the plasma-like group for in-hospital mortality um, versus a relative increase in 17%. So it did cross zero. Um, so it could be either way, but I think that 1% absolute difference is, you know, it's good to put a pin in because I know several trials of the week in the future that I'm sure that you'll talk about, that's been pretty consistent, that 1% absolute difference. That is the most fun fact that two-thirds of them blinded questioned knew which fluid their patients were getting. So shout out to our uh, our New Zealand clinicians on this. To to consi to continue the flex uh, on this, when you're when you're going through the supplementary appendix, um, they have a whole section dedicated to the uh, research accomplishments of these ICUs and all the research trials that they've contributed to. So if you're curious, um, they reference all the, the ANZIC studies that these ICUs were in. So I thought that was fascinating. So I like that you not only pointed out some things, um, that definitely stood out to you, but also kind of compared to some of our other ICU disease states. So talk us through like when you, when you're reading this and stuff at, or you're talking through this trial, like what are, what are like comments or, or some of the common critiques that you kind of think of as you're going through this? 
Yeah, I, I think if any, you know, if folks have ever worked in a cardiac surgery ICU, there's two things to, well, even not even cardiac surgery, just in general. You know, nobody mentions in this study if the OR itself was also randomized to receive different fluids. So you always worry about what's your intra-op fluid balance and what type of fluids they received intraoperatively, how much did they receive anything, you know, whatever it may be. So I think that's an important distinction. If you're going to have a big chunk of your folks coming from the OR, what type of fluid or were they randomized that type, you know, in, in general for the same crossover type design? Um, also, if you've ever worked with cardiac surgeons, you know that when their patients come out of the OR, they could be on three pressors on 100% FiO2. And what is their go-to thing? We want to give them Lasix, albumin, and wean to extubate. Right, that is their that is their goal, and so to know that most of these patients were mostly post-op cardiac surgery, certainly they um, you know got roughly two liters of this um, of the blinded study fluid you know that we were um, look that we were investigating, but it doesn't talk as much you know you got a pretty dig deep um, in terms of albumin it was relatively similar. But what you really want to know is, as we continue to evolve in our knowledge of fluid type and fluid balance and that type of thing, I bet a lot of these cardiac surgery patients also got a lot of Lasix after the first chunks of, you know, the first boluses of fluid. Because most of their two liters that they received was in the first day or so um, in the ICU. So I bet on day two, they really started hammering them with some Lasix. And so I really like to know two real big things. One was what is their overall fluid balance from a day-to-day -day perspective while in the ICU and just hospital stay specifically, um, because I think we've got a lot of data now that ties that back to some of our outcomes of interest. Um, but also their serum chloride levels, because <clears throat> I think, you know, if one of the big arguments between the two is chloride levels. If you saw no difference in chloride levels between the two, then maybe you're not actually, there wasn't enough of an intervention to see what you're trying to look for, um, if, if that makes sense. I'm glad you highlighted that. I was actually shocked that, you know, they talk about all the data that they're going to collect and in the supplementary appendix, like chloride levels aren't really listed anywhere. Um, I mean, they're getting BMPs, right? Basic metabolic panels probably to get that creatinine. So that surprised me a little bit. Um, yeah, you really do have to do some digging to find out like amount of albumin they received and things, which for the record also seemed pretty low when I looked at the sheer amount of, of people that got albumin in the in the CT surgery group. But um, yeah, really good points and things that um, aren't necessarily like critiques of the study per se, just things that we'd like to know that would inform decisions of us, right? That we, you know, um, that would help our interpretation of some of this. Now, we talked about fluids that patients have received. My question is, how much fluid, because as you talk about these landmark um, saline versus balanced fluid studies, a question that routinely comes up is how much fluid did they get? So, Thinking about, we, you know, we could focus on either this split trial or, or just in general, but how much fluid do you think patients need to receive to actually find a meaningful difference in patient outcomes? Because if you, if you swap one 500 saline for one 500 of LR, is that going to make a difference? Probably not. But at what point do we know at what point, like in the fluid administration, like, you know, you've received this much, that's when we should probably see a difference. Or are we still trying to figure that out? 
Um, I think I've got like two or three different ways to answer or at least to share my, my opinion about that, about that question. Um, and first, I think it goes, again, back to one of the issues with this study. And keep in mind, this is only the second randomized trial looking at comparing two different fluids. So people, these investigators are really trying to get their feet up under them is what is the, the right approach for these types of studies. And we've seen the evolution of that over, over time. Um, but in general, I mean, we talked a lot about a lot of cardiovascular surgery, but like you mentioned, there was no real heavy exclusion criteria. It's just whoever came to the ICU, they were randomized. And so I think you have one, you have a humongously heterogeneous population um, or possible population. And it just happened that we just really only studied these two in a cardiac surgery population. Um, what it also really doesn't tell you is what is the indication for the fluid? Um, you know, we, when we talk about fluid stewardship and different models of, of fluid therapy, you know, were these patients getting resuscitate? Were they getting rescue therapy with fluid or optimization therapy, stabilization? I mean, you know, normally when you talk about evacuation, you're talking more about diuretics and, um, you know, evacuation, get, removal of fluid, whether it's through drugs or dialysis or um, you know, passive diuresis. So I think that's another thing to take into account because the question that you, that you're posing, you know, how much fluid actually matters? Well, I think the amount of fluid that matters is dependent on the indication. And there's a great editorial, um, that was published in JAMA just, um, soon after this study was published. And it essentially says when we're comparing fluids like this, are we trying to look at it? Um, are, is this a, a trial of efficacy or a trial of safety? Because if you're looking at mortality um, or AKI as efficacy, then you only need to include patients that have a fluid responsive AKI, like a volume depleted AKI to see if fluid, not only is fluid the right answer, but then you can determine if the type of fluid matters. Um, if you're doing it for stabilization, or, um, you know, just for a maintenance fluid therapy for replacement for ongoing losses. You know, we already have some early trials, the top mass trial and the mimosa trials that look at um, hypotonic solution versus isotonic solution as maintenance fluid therapy and hypotonics probably preferred. And so I think if you're using fluids for the stabilization indication, again, that's pretty vague in and of itself then this probably all still isn't even the right intervention comparison to look at. So I think the way that this study is set up and many of them that are set up, you're looking at mortality and AKI, you're not looking at an efficacy trial. You're looking at it from a safety standpoint. So patients that get fluid is one of them safer than another. Um, how much fluid matters? So I think the indication is one thing. I think another thing that the studies have continually showed is that there, you know, 500 mils to your example, um, maybe a liter doesn't matter if you use a, high, a higher chloride solution, but it's when patients need ongoing fluids, giving them, it's almost like a cumulative chloride administration over their ICU state. That's probably what matters. So if you're going to give a patient fluid, you don't know right now what their fluid needs are going to be for the next seven days. So you can't guesstimate, oh, saline is probably safe um, now because you don't know what they're going to need later. And that's why it's called fluid stewardship. We call it antibiotic stewardship. It's not because vancomycin is terrible for this patient. It's probably 
really great for this patient, but it's unnecessarily great because of all the downstream consequences, right? For their future admissions, for your antibiogram, for other patients in their ICU. So you are being a steward for the downstream effects. And so I think that's where we are now with fluid stewardship is a small amount probably doesn't matter, but a large amount does. And we don't have a good idea of what a patient's requirements are going to be cumulatively. And so it's better to start on the safe end, um, you know, from, from the get-go. And you mentioned um, through that, right, that we're, we're trying to, to search and, and figure out the right thing. So in that same kind of vein, you know, we know the limitations in serum creatinine, right? But example, in this trial, we're still using serum creatinine to define AKI. Now, that being said, you know, you mentioned you know, I would have liked to see fluid balances, right? If that was easy, all of our inpatients should be doing it. So understanding that some of the limitations, but is there anything else that we can or should be using, whether it's in in a research or a clinical setting? Yeah, I think in general, you know, you still hear about rifle sometimes, but one of the big arguments is rifle is a change in creatinine or an AKI over a seven-day span. Uh, You know, the acute kidney injury network or the Aiken criteria, they look at it more within like 48 hours. So really, truly trying to capture what is the definition of acute. We have a pretty good idea. Well, first, I would say contrast AKI doesn't really exist for intravenous contrast. But we have an idea that if a patient develops an AKI from contrast, it's going to happen within 72 hours. So if we really want to look at AKI or need for need for renal replacement therapy, we really need to get a good idea of what is our time frame in which we expect it to happen um, if we're just looking at the resuscitation phase, right? In the first 24 to 48 hours of fluid resuscitation, then maybe we only look at AKI for the following 48 hours, for example. Um, Definitely some some issues, you know, with creatinine, especially the way that they kind of spelled it out, again, kind of using just hard cutoff um, absolute values, if you will, of serum creatinine. Um, there's arguments for cystatin C as a biomarker. Um, I personally don't have any experience with that, but it seems like, especially as this whole um, Zosin Vank versus Cefepime Vank um, issue of AKI comes to light, that it's, you know, uh, kind of a false positive. Maybe we need something that's a little bit more reliable like cystatin C. So I think that's a possibility. Um, I think, I, you know, ideally, the best marker of renal function is going to be your urine output. Um, but for all of us that know that work in an ICU, fluid balance and urine output specifically is unbelievably difficult to have really true estimates of measure. Um, in fact, I think there was a um, there was a trial that was started specifically looking at de-resuscitation in the ICU called the GODIF um, or GODIF, G-O-D-I-F trial. And they actually had to stop it early because the urine output documentation was so sad. Um, and they actually had to revamp and revise their protocol for collection and documentation of I's and O's. Um, and now they're they're just like getting getting their feet back under them to to do that again. Yeah, I mean it's right the your um, your tracking and things is only going to be as good as your documentation. For those who have who have tried to track and and accurate fluid balances, especially as we're trying not to have foley's in our patients, right? Not catheters for everybody, no more, right? So all those things kind of make it uh, a little bit more challenging. So. 
let's let's kind of shift into like where are we now thinking about how we've kind of gone from the split trial to here and um, the primary outcome right of this study specifically was AKI or renal failure right based on that rifle criteria and but a lot of the large landmark ANZICs and other study groups a lot of those big ICU trials are now doing you know classically 90-day mortality as their primary outcome so what do we what do we think is the best primary outcome for these studies? Is it something that's looking at your renal function like AKI or need for renal replacement therapy? Is it mortality? Is it something else? What do you think based on on your opinion and, and what's been published in this area? Um, I think it goes back to my, you know, the previous comment that I, again, kind of stole from that editorial is, are we going to look at, are we doing a safety trial or an efficacy trial? If you're looking at a safety trial, I mean, again, several studies have found an absolute difference in one per- of 1% in hospital mortality um, or 30-day mortality. So I do think there is some early signals of mortality, but I think in general, the further out you get, especially for when you're only giving two liters only in their first 24 hours of ICU stay, but then you're looking 90 days out, you have so many other confounders um, or influences that are going to you know, kind of impact that outcome. So I think if you're looking at safety, I think AKI, the need for dialysis, ICU length of stay, ICU and hospital mortality are probably good. But I think the bigger question, and I think we're starting to evolve more this direction, is what about the efficacy question? Is are fluids even the right answer? Um, you know, there's a lot of studies like clovers, for example, looking at early pressors versus continued fluids. You know, I pose the question to students and residents on rotation all the time. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? When you look at your ICU patient, are they hypovolemic, euvolemic or hypervolemic? And you're looking at all these blood pressures and all these other different measurements. And some of them give you dis, um, con, you know, con- contrary answers. Um, and so we got to know the limitations of all of those things. So I think efficacy trials of fluids in specific indications is where we need to go. So let's, and you know, you're starting to see there is a small um, subgroup study that looked at plasmolite versus saline in the resuscitation phase of patients with DKA. And we just had one that was fluid resuscitation in patients with severe pancreatitis. And or are fluids even relevant, a big fluid bolus prior to intubation Um, where, you know, the prior to intubation was just fluids or no fluids and they found no difference. But those are the types of things we need to ask first. Are fluids even the right answer? And then if when we decide that fluids are the right answer, then you can start determining what is the safe fluid or the appropriate fluid to use for efficacy or for safety for that specific indication. That was a loaded question or a loaded answer for a probably a more simple sounding question. Sorry. I think it, I think you could say that was a loaded answer for a loaded question. That feels like what it was. So I thought that was perfect. Um, now you did a good job of talking about like are fluids, the right answer, talking about some of these questions. What would you say if you had to, if you had to choose a couple standouts, what are some of the biggest questions that we need answered looking at fluids and whether it's choice of fluids, how much, what are, what are some of those big ticket kind of items that we're thinking about? Oh man, there's a lot of those. Um, I definitely, I still think there's a lot of issues with current literature on 
um, early pressors versus fluids in the resuscitation phase of, of sepsis, right? When you have distributed shock from anaphylaxis, you don't grab a liter of fluid, you grab an EpiPen. And septic shock is also distributive shock, so maybe we should stab somebody with an EpiPen and then decide if we need to give them some fluid boluses kind of thing. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity there, but most of these studies, patients get a decent amount of fluids prior to enrollment. So that's where a lot of the limitations are. Um, I struggle a little bit with wanting to have a study to see the efficacy or the need um, for maintenance fluids, because I think in the grand scheme of fluid stewardship, what fluid do we need um, or do we need fluid or not? You know, you still see a lot of folks that are getting maintenance fluids during their ICU or hospital stay. We don't have really any data to say that it's bad, but we don't have any data to say that it's good. So it's like, you know, an uh, um, absence of data is not the data of absence kind of thing. And so I would really like some type of data to be generated so that I can really more strongly argue in practice this patient does not need maintenance IV fluids because they're NPO for 48 hours. Um, you know, or, you know, they're on pressors and we don't want to give them enteral nutrition for 48 hours. TPN's probably a little bit too much right now. They all, if, if we don't need to give them TPN for seven days, we probably also don't need to give them just general maintenance salt water for seven days, right? If we need, if we, if we're not going to give them protein, then we probably also don't need to just give them salt water. Um, so I think those are probably some more general overarching um, questions about fluids in general. Um, but I think in terms of fluid stewardship, the studies that I would really like um, are really to help guide our de-resuscitation efforts. When do we start it? How do we do it effectively? And, 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 and also safe, safely. And I think you'll see some of that in some of the studies that are, you know, in the works, um, you know, ongoing. I think now we're probably um, out of this general um, crystalloid versus or um, balanced versus saline um, in general, and now they're getting a little bit more specific. So I know the Arise Fluids trial is specifically looking at early fluid type and pressors and sepsis. Um, the FISH study is fluids and sepsis and septic shock. Again, um, looking at saline versus LR type stuff. Um, so I think there's there's a couple more that are still coming out to answer the right question or to answer a similar question as the split trial, but the indication for the fluid is becoming a little bit more narrow. Well, Anthony, I know I could speak for the listeners uh, and for myself when I could say, I'm glad we got you to help keep this straight, to keep letting us know what research is on the horizon, what questions that still need to be answered. Uh, what an awesome job reviewing reviewing our October trial of the week, the split trial. So reach out to Anthony at I am a Hawkins uh, at UGA C3. Um, the last thing we got to end with, how did, uh, where are we in hunting season? Uh, man, that I got to be safe answering this question here, but <laughs> I have hunted, I have hunted less. I have hunted less this deer season um, up to this point than I have probably any deer season in quite some time because man, every weekend, at least right now has just been really booked with just family type things and other social events and that type of stuff. So it's really been great. You know, I, 
during this time, I would never choose a football game. I would never choose to go do fun, adventurous traveling with friends. I would be in the woods hunting every time. So I think I've been to like four football games. Uh, we went to the Georgia-Auburn game. In, my wife is an Auburn fan, so let's start there. Um, we went to the Georgia-Auburn game in Auburn. Wait, wait. She, we went to- she took you to the Georgia-Auburn game at Auburn. Is that probably a better way of phrasing it? Uh, technically, yes. They were my <laughs> tickets as a faculty member, but she definitely took me to the Auburn game. Um, we went, actually, we went, we took a weekend, a four day weekend with some friends, went to Napa and did some wine tasting. Um, I would never have done that before. And while we were there, conveniently enough, um, Auburn was playing Cal in, um, outside of Oakland. So we went to that game. Um, so lots more football and traveling in the last month and a half than any other deer season has brought me. Um, but she works this coming weekend or next weekend. So that'll be my first real good weekend with true fall deer season weather to get after it. You are on such an Island because every other person listening to what you've been doing is jealous of you because it's been so awesome. And I wish you all could see the pain in his face when he's talking about the lack that he said, <laughs> Oh man. Hey man, my freezer's getting my freezer's getting empty, so it's about that time. <laughs> Anthony, you're the best. Open invitation to always come back. Thanks for all you do. Appreciate you, brother. Huge thanks again to Anthony for uh coming back, returning, uh, giving us some insight into the split study. Um let him know what you think. Remember, at IMA Hawkins. Of course, I always value your feedback at Pharmacy to Dose, uh, Pharmacy to Dose at gmail.com. The reference list with the articles we discussed in that podcast episode description, as well as our updated, woo, Pharmacy to Dose.com website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The content and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.